Let us turn to that passage that we read together in the middle of John chapter 14, verses 15 to the end. I'm not good at titles, but I was asked for one and I had to, well, have a go at something fairly quickly. So the comings and Christ's going, maybe that's a bit cryptic, but I hope it will become a bit clearer well, as, he, well, as we proceed this evening. Well, just by way of introduction, John's Gospel is quite different from Matthew, Mark, and Luke. That's really as we read them. And there's no temptation there, no parables, no transfiguration, no institution of the Lord's Supper. Yes, but what we have is the first miracle in the Cana of Galilee. And well-known stories about Christ's contact with individuals. Yes, only in John are the I Am statements. And much more of his gospel is based in Jerusalem or what happened in Jerusalem. But his great purpose is evangelistic. Many other signs therefore did Jesus that are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ and that believing you might have life through his name. And it's a book which deals in a special way with Jesus' self-disclosure. Yes, both in word and in signs. And a lot of it is to individuals in a series of personal encounters. Like Nicodemus, first of all, and then the woman at the well of Samaria. The healing of the nobleman's son. The healing of the man at the pool of Bethesda. The healing of the man born blind. But as Jesus revealed himself publicly, rising opposition, and especially in Jerusalem, developed into the head-on confrontation. And then to a then to a decision to kill him following the raising of Lazarus. Well, the second half of John's Gospel consists of Jesus' farewell discourses and the Passion narrative. And his farewell discourses are covered in chapters 13 to 16, those that we associate with the upper room. And in them, Jesus gives instructions to his church through his disciples, and prepares them for their future work in the kingdom of heaven. And he concludes it all with the great prayer of John chapter 17. And we come now to Thursday night. It's the eve of the crucifixion. And Jesus is there, there with the twelve. It's a troubled room, because none of them would, take, would undertake the common courtesy of washing the feet of the others. But Jesus, our Lord, rose and he did it himself. And they were ashamed. And soon, soon he warned that one of them was about to betray him. Who was it? Well, Judas Iscariot left. And next Jesus announced to Peter that in a few hours he would deny him three times. And more was to follow that night. My time with you is almost over. And you cannot come with me. And he was referring to his death and resurrection and ascension but it was not but it was not clear to them yes but in the middle of chapter chapter 14 where we pick up he had promised them a place where he was going a place of many mansions a place of many dwelling places and now he takes up very specifically his departure and the coming of the holy spirit and so we're looking looking at the comings in Christ's going. And the first one, the Holy Spirit is coming. Yes, and it begins, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. 
Now it was always the case that the people of God exercised love for the first table of the law expresses our love to God and the second table of the law expresses our love for one another. And in chapter 13, verses 34 and 35, yes, Jesus spoke there of a new commandment that he was giving them. Because the obligation of New Testament believers to respond to God who had redeemed them by the blood of his Son was now to love one another. And this love was not evident until Christ came. And when we do this, we replicate the love of Christ himself for his people. But here for the first time, John's Gospel speaks of the disciples' love for the Lord. And the first evidence that people love the Lord is that they obey, that they keep his commandments. If they love him, they will keep his commandments. And it's plural. It's not just in a general way the revealed word of God, but it specifics all of them. See, we often like to deal with things in the round and hide ourselves in a general picture. So he says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. That is the first evidence of your love for me. But a second outcome of it is, of, of loving me, is that I will ask the Father to send you the Holy Spirit. That's in verse 16 there. He says, and I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. He'll be a counselor. He'll be an advocate and a helper, like someone who's with the accused in court, helping the accused in whatever way that help may be necessary. But the meaning is wider. It's literally one who is called alongside to help. And he'll give strengthening and comfort and encouragement and words and help in any way that is required so that nothing is ever going to be lacking. It will all be totally effective help when the Holy Spirit comes. The Holy Spirit is coming. I'm going. But the Holy Spirit is coming. He'll be beside you to help. And he will help you in every possible way that you can need help. And he's called here in this passage also another helper. For Jesus had been performing this role personally for the disciples during his earthly ministry. And this is one of the reasons for their distress over his impending departure. But after his departure, they would not be without a helper. It would be, it would be fulfilled by another, namely the Spirit of God. Now Jesus would continue his mediation at the Father's right hand in heaven. And the Holy Spirit would fulfill his helper role on earth. And having said this, that there would be another helper... He would help in heaven. The Holy Spirit would help on earth. Then Jesus begins to fill out the picture of this helper whom he's speaking about. He said he'll be with you forever. Now in the Old Testament, the Spirit often came upon individuals for specific tasks. But now he will permanently dwell in every believer. He says none of you will ever be without this help. He dwells with you and he will be in you. And since the Holy Spirit was poured out at Pentecost, he has remained in the church. He will always be in the church. Then this permanently indwelling Holy Spirit is something else. He's the Spirit of truth. He's the Spirit who communicates the truth. He bears witness to the, to the truth. And Jesus had just said, 
I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so the Spirit, in a special way, bears witness to the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the truth. He takes the things of Christ and declares them to us. But Jesus said, in contrast and by sharp distinction, the world cannot receive him. It neither sees him nor knows him. He is exclusively for those who belong to Christ. And Jesus said, you already know him, for he lives within you. But you will know him and experience him in all his helper attributes so much more when he is poured out on my departure. Yes, and we've looked there at those opening verses of verses 15 and 16. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. It's been after turning to another coming that we refer to shortly. Afterwards in this section, he comes back to the Holy Spirit in verse 25. And in verse 25 there we read, These things I have spoken and spoken to you while I am still with you. But the help of the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Yes, Jesus wants to linger with them. But at the same time, he's reminding his disciples of his departure. And it's mention of his departure that he's going that brings them back to the topic of the Holy Spirit. And so in verses 25 and 26, we have the second of the Holy Spirit passages in these chapters. And and he said, let me tell you something more about the Holy Spirit. I have told you that he'll be your advocate, that he will be beside you alongside, and that he will bring you every kind of help. I've told you that he will be with you forever. But now he says, he will teach you all things. He's going to be your teacher as well. He will teach you to understand my ministry much better. Often they had failed. They had failed again and again and again. And you remember earlier, earlier in his ministry, Jesus had said that he would destroy this temple and rebuild it in three days. And the Jews completely misunderstood it. But this temple took took 46 years in building and you're going to replace it in three days. And we read there that the disciples understood afterwards that he was speaking of his death and resurrection. So so he's going to be your teacher and he's going to bring all things to your remembrance. Everything that I've said to you for he's the spirit of truth. His work will be comprehensive and it will be searching. And you are the first witnesses. And some of you are going to write in the future. So it is vital that you have full understanding. And we see this key work of the Spirit as teacher in the production of the New Testament scriptures. And you think of those great discourses, for example, in Matthew's Gospel. And you think of the Sermon on the Mount, those three chapters. And all the detail there that is recorded. How was this remembered as they listened to him out there in the mountain speaking these wonderful words? Because the Holy Spirit brought all things to their remembrance. 
And what about these very chapters, these discourses in the upper room, 13 to 17, including that prayer. The Holy Spirit brought all these things to the remembrance of the disciples. And so it's written down in the New Testament. And it still has role to help us to know Christ and his word. And also here, Jesus just, just does not call the Spirit a helper, but he calls him the Holy Spirit. And it's important to note, to note holy, for one of his primary tasks is to make us holy as a Savior was himself. And so he's the Spirit of truth now. He's also the Spirit of holiness. Jesus has said, look, if you love me, it will be evidenced in this, you will keep my commandments. And for my part, I'm going to make request of the Father. And he will send you this wonderful Holy Spirit, whose total help you will experience in far greater measure than you think could be the case. He'll be the Spirit of truth as well. He'll be your teacher. He'll be the Spirit of holiness who will dwell in you permanently, providing every help you will ever acquire. And you do not want me to go away, he said. And you're distressed to think that I am going. And they were. But what you must understand is that the coming of the Holy Spirit is so incalculably to your advantage. Well, Jesus is going. But... But first of all, in the comings, the Holy Spirit is coming. But next he says, I am coming. And we go back there to verse 18. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more. But you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. And so on. For the coming of the Holy Spirit, Jesus said, is not the whole of the blessings which will come from me leaving. I will not leave you as orphans. I'll come to you. And the coming of the Holy Spirit doesn't mean that you're saying a permanent goodbye to me. In a short time, I'm going to die. And the world all around you will not see me again. But you will. And he was referring here primarily to his resurrection and his post-resurrection appearances. And he did this, you remember, to individual believers and to the twelve and to a great company of people in Galilee, more than 500 of them, but never to the world. That's what he means by this. And things are going to clear up for you then. In that day you'll grasp the great truth that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. You will see the oneness that operates between me, my Father, and you. It's something to look forward to. It will be very far better for you when, I'm, when I go away. Yes, I'm going to die. But you will see me again as evidence of the resurrection after that. You will see me alive again because I'm going to rise from the dead. And the great significance of that is that because I live... You will live too. You are going to experience resurrection in the same way. And so it all looks beyond those resurrection appearances to the great day when the kingdom of God will be consummated, when the tabernacle of God will be with his people and that he'll dwell with them forever in the new heavens and the new earth in their eternal state. 
And so he says in verse 21, putting it all together, anyone who knows my commandments and keeps them loves me. And my Father will love such a person, and I will love him and manifest myself to him, certainly in my resurrection appearances, but my continuing presence, for I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Yes, and Judas, Judas asks for clarification in verse 22. Well, not Judas Iscariot, he had left already. Yes, this is Judas, who is Labias, whose surname was Thaddeus, sometimes called Judas of James, either, either a brother or son of James. And the thing which troubled, troubled Judas when he heard this was how could Jesus show himself to the twelve without the whole world seeing it? How could this be possible? And he was revealing in his question the kind, kind of revealing that he would like, earthly and political and dramatic with power and glory, the kind of messianic thing that they had always, always looked forward to in their secular way. And the whole point of it was in Judas's mind that was that the world would see it. So how, how are you just going to show yourself to us and not to the world? And he wants Jesus to manifest himself in the way that the Jews expected their Messiah to do so. But he was mistaken. For this universal glory would have to await his second coming when every eye shall see him and every knee shall bow. Oh, how Judas needed the spirit of truth as his teacher. And so Jesus explains again. He says, the character of my showing myself to you is spiritual during this age. And he speaks more personally. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. Father and Son will come to him in the spirit. We'll make our home with him in his heart and in his life. We will dwell there. It will be a personal, intimate, spiritual experience. Don't look for earthly glory. And how distinctive and special that is. And the converse is also true that the person who does not love me does not obey me. And that is not obeying the God of heaven who sent me. It all started with love and obedience. And this is what all these, what all these blessings depend upon. He says, Judas, you focus, at the, you focus on that. You focus on the spiritual meaning of these things, which is so precious. Yes, don't be looking for this Jewish messianic coming in that secular way. And another aspect of the continuing presence of Christ is in verse 27. And he speaks there of his peace and the gift of peace. He speaks of my peace. And in some respect, this is the greatest of all. I leave it to you. It's like a bequest or a treasure or an inheritance. Through Christ's death, you see, we have peace with God. We have peace of reconciliation and sins forgiven. We have no more fear of the day of judgment and the wrath of God. There is no, no other way of achieving peace. But perhaps your life lacks this peace. And if it does, then the recognition of it is a major step in itself through God's grace in achieving it. 
My peace I leave with you. I give it to you like an inheritance. And this is not the only aspect of peace in view here. At the end of the verse, let not your hearts be troubled or afraid. Is Jesus is always speaking about the peace of tranquility that we have in him. For we have the absence of anxiety and the threat and fearful disturbance which it brings to our hearts. It's the peace which the assurance of the presence of God brings to all situations of life. Remember Peter had it on the night before his intended execution. All is in control. You see we have this helper, this comforter in all the circumstances of life. who gives us every kind of help including the peace that we need. While there are many in this world who may encourage us and urge us to be positive and tell us that it will all work out well in the end. At times they say peace, peace when there is no peace. But the world is not characterized by achieving peace. It simply cannot achieve that. And the evidence of that has always abounded in every nation. Yet people work for it in every nation. But it's always temporary. It's always incomplete. And soon another attempt must be made in the same place or somewhere else. It can be very well-meaning. It can be helpful too. And we are thankful for it. And we pray for it. Pray for those who do it. But Jesus said, my peace is not as the world gives. It's my peace. Because the world can never give that inner stability and assurance that Christ, that Christ does. Only his, only his has the contents. And so we are not to be fearful. So he says, if you love, so, so he says, if your love for me was as developed as it could be, then you would not be overcast and fearful because I'm going away. You would be rejoicing. You would be rejoicing for me and for yourselves too. For he said, the Father is greater than I. Sorry. He said, the Father is greater than I. You see me as mediator. I have come here as a servant. I have subordinated myself. I'm doing the Father's will. I'm veiled in flesh. I'm in a state of humiliation. But I'm going to my Father. And I'm going to the glory which I had with him before the world began. To the place of all power and authority for my church. You've seen my divine attributes at work. But the Father is greater than anything you've ever seen in me in this world. And I'm going to resume that great, that great, that same greatness and glory which I have had forever. And if you understood that, you would rejoice. And I'm telling you about it so that when it happens, you will not be surprised or puzzled about how, about how you ought to react. I'm telling you that you might believe. And so Christ is going away. Tomorrow is the start of it. And he's making it clear to his disciples. But my going away all the time, he says, is to your advantage. To your advantage in ways that you simply cannot calculate or take in. Because when I go, the Holy Spirit will come. And I am coming to you myself in these ways that I've explained. I'll give you my peace. Yes, but thirdly, he says in verse 28, 
the prince of this world is coming. You heard me say, I'm going away and I will come to you. If you love me, you would have rejoiced because I'm going to the Father. For the Father is greater than I, and now I have told you before it takes place, and when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. And he says, as he comes towards the end, I will no longer talk much with you. For the prince of this world is coming. And he would come very soon in the person of his agent Judas Iscariot. Who had already left to earn his 30 pieces of silver. But Satan was a great power behind achieving the death of Christ. And Judas Iscariot would do what he did because Satan had entered into him. Satan is coming. And the Lord was now going out to engage with him. There was going to be no turning back and no delay. Yes, the Holy Spirit is coming. I'm coming too. But the Prince of this world is coming. And he's going to go out and he's going to engage with the Prince of this world. And this too is good news. Because Satan is going to be defeated. Utterly overthrown. And Jesus said here he's no claiming me. He's no charges to bring against me. For the Lord was without sin. And there was nothing that Satan could accuse him of. Yes, and the Lord was effectively outside Satan's range. Satan was staring defeat in the face here. But he couldn't see it. For the Lord triumphed over him in his cross. Making a show of him openly. And the very climax of Satan's strategy and power was putting the Saviour on the cross. But that constituted his own utter defeat. That's where he lost everything at his very greatest moment. Now that cross was going to be indescribably awful. It would break upon Jesus in all its reality very shortly in Gethsemane. And you remember, Father, if it be possible... Don't put me through this, but not my will, but yours be done. And you remember the Father sent an angel to strengthen him. But Jesus explains here, he has commanded me, and I do it because I love him. And I want the world to see, see this love of mine for the Father. I'm about to be arrested. I'm about to be tried, a sham of a trial. I'm going to be beaten and bruised and crucified on the cross. But all this is not happening because, because of Satan and the power of Satan. It's all going to be happening because my Father has commanded me. And I'm doing it in obedience to him. I've said to you before, if you love me, keep my commandments. And I'm not asking you to do something that I will not do myself. He is no claim in me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go. Go from hence. Well, we've been thinking this evening, yes, of the Saviour's going.
going through his death and resurrection and ascension. But he said there's comings involved in this and the Holy Spirit is coming. You wouldn't believe the benefit that that's going to be to you when he comes. All he's going to do for you. He'll be alongside you. He'll be with you forever. He'll be the spirit of truth and the spirit of holiness. I'm coming as well. I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'll be at the right hand of God. I'll give you my peace. I'll be working there for you with all my power and glory at the right hand of God. But the prince of this world is coming. All the greatest news that the world has ever heard. Our sins have been dealt with by, by the love of God and delivering up his son for us. And he used the prince of this world to bring it all about. Defeated him utterly in the process. The saviour is now now in the place of all power and authority. And he exercises it on behalf of his church. He has left to his church and to its every member the gift of the Holy Spirit as our teacher and our helper for every situation where help is required. He has also left us his peace, peace with God, peace and stability in our own hearts. He has also promised us his own personal presence even to the end of the world. Yeah, I was thinking recently of a lady called Lois Blanchard Eads. And she's, and she's best known, I think, for the writing of a poem, I think, in the 1950s called If Jesus Came to Your House. Perhaps you've heard it before. Yes, if Jesus came to your house to spend a day or two, if he came unexpectedly, I wonder what you'd do. Oh, I know you'd give your nicest room to such an honoured guest and all the food you'd serve to him would be the very best. And you would keep assuring him you're glad to have him there that serving him in your own home is joy beyond compare. But if you saw him coming, would you meet him at the door with arms outstretched and welcome to your heavenly visitor? Or would you have to change your clothes before you let him in and hide some magazines and put the Bible where they'd been? Yes, would you? Would you turn off the radio and hope he hadn't heard and wish he hadn't wish you hadn't uttered that last loud hasty word? Would you hide your worldly music and put some hymn books out? Could you let Jesus walk walk right in or would you rush about? Would you sing the songs you always sing and read the books you read and let him know the things in which your mind and spirit feed? Would you take Jesus with you everywhere you plan to go? Or would you maybe change your plans for, well, perhaps a day or so? I'll go to the last verse. Would you be glad to have him meet your very closest friends or would you hope he'd stay away until, they'd stay away until his visit ends? Would you be glad to have him stay forever, on and on? Or would you sigh with great relief when he at last is gone? It might be interesting to know the things that you would do if Jesus Christ in person came to spend some time with you. Well, it's quite old, and every time I think of those verses, it gives my Christian life a kind of jolt. 
Yes, how near to the heart of God do I live? How far am I conformed to this world? What is my holiness like? How do I live well pleasing to him and so on? Yes, but as we think of these words, yes, and if you've been paying any attention at all to what I've been saying this evening, well, you know what I'm going to say next. It's quite a famous poem and still gets, gets, gets rave reviews and so on. But you see, Jesus Christ in person is not going to come and spend some time with you. He's not going to come and spend any time with you. He's gone away. We'll not see him again until, until the heavens roll back like a scroll. He's here by his spirit. And the poem just gives the impression at times that having Christ would be a great problem, problem to a believer. And the disciples were very imperfect men. And, and, and he saw their sin many and many a time. But they loved him and they didn't want him to go. And if he was here by his presence, we would, we would love him as well. But you see, the Holy Spirit's presence is continuous. If Jesus came to your house, he wouldn't be with you 24 hours a day. Yes, but the Holy Spirit is with us all the time. Everything that we do is before his very face. We were singing earlier, earlier in Psalm 139, that he knows all our thoughts, all our thoughts even. And we can grieve the Holy Spirit as well. And yes, these things do make us think of our Christian lives. That, that continuing and dwelling presence of God's Spirit. And we are to live before him in a way which pleases him and which brings also glory to God. Well, Paul urges us to be filled with the Spirit. And the filling or fullness of the Spirit refers to a high degree of consecration to God and the manifestation of power or godliness that accompanies it. It characterizes some believers more than others, and some believers more at some times than at other times. But it is available to all believers because all have been baptized, baptized with the Spirit, and all have a duty to seek his filling by submitting to his ministry, just whatever the sacrifice might be. And while Christians are never asked to seek the baptism of the Spirit, they're urged to seek his filling. And do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Well, Christ is going. Yes, on that night before he died, he is now gone. And we'll not see him again until he comes in glory in person. Yes, but there are things that come. He sent his Holy Spirit, and what a blessing that is. He's there himself also, and the prince of this world has been utterly defeated and overthrown. And may God give us grace to love the arrangement that he's made and to love the Holy Spirit and to seek his filling and his blessing more and more. Well, let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we give thanks again for the word of God and for these wonderful things that we have been considering this evening. And we rejoice again in our Saviour in his willingness to go to that cross and he did it because because it was not his own will but the father's will and he loved his father 
and he sought to express that love and being obedient to him. Lord, give this to us as well. Help us to love one another and help us to love God and evidence, evidence it by keeping his commandments. Lord, grant us all these blessings in life. Grant us also to appreciate the Holy Spirit more. Forgive all our sins. In our Savior's precious name we ask it. Amen.